Um, welcome back. Hopefully it's a welcome back. Um, this is session seven of our series on the book of Revelation, and today we're going to have a look at chapter 14. Um, first of all, um, a bit of housekeeping. Apologies to the early adopters. Um, the first few people that listened to um, session six, part A, um, probably got a dodgy version that we had to take down because it had um, chopped up the audio on the podcast and we had to um, re-upload it. So if you're one of those people, apologies, but hopefully the problem's fixed now. Um, I'll begin just by um, praying briefly and then we'll start having a look at um, Chapter 14. Lord Jesus, uh, thank you for sustaining us every day and in every way. Thanks for the life that we have in you. I just um, pray that the technology would work well today. I pray that uh, Hannah's sore back would get better. And I also pray that you would... Um, Give us more of a glimpse of your um, where our life is is hid with you. Give us more of a glimpse of that the heavenly reality of who we are in you, and that we're secure, and that um, we truly do belong to you and share your life. And we just thank you. Um, for everything that you give us. We thank you especially for your word and for your Holy Spirit. And we just um, want to continue today honouring your spirit and asking you to help me speak clearly and help our listeners to um, hear good things too that um, are from you. In Jesus' name, amen. Um. Just a really quick little introduction. This is this is a very encouraging chapter. Um, when you first read it, you mightn't think that because the last bit of the chapter is this absolutely horrific um, picture of judgment, um, tr the treading of the wine presses, um, and it, it's quite uncomfortable. Um, and a lot of a lot of Christians really struggle with these sorts of. Uh, images of God and his judgment. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that we'll come to see as we move through the chapter, this is a deeply encouraging chapter for the early church. Mm -hmm. um, it, um, and there's lots of rich things to see that tap into um, Jewish heritage and the whole story of redemption. Um, there's a lot going on. That's part of the reason why we're only doing one chapter in this session. But but the main the main thing to keep in your head as we're going through this chapter is understanding the perspective that we're being given here. Um, it's very much a heavenly perspective. We're being given a perspective of the reality, the heavenly reality mm. of uh, 
what life is for for the faithful followers of the Lamb. So for those Christians in the first century in Asia Minor, it's very similar to the way Paul talks to the Colossians about saying, look up, you know, your life is hid with Christ in God. That's where your true life is found. It's Mm. with God. It's not open to sight. It's something that's open to faith. And Mm. you need to... You, you, you need to embrace and take hold by faith mm. of the truth of who you are and who he is and where he has you. That's mm. very much the picture here. You're being, you're, John's unveiling for us through this vision um, a picture of that lot, that the life of the remnant covenant people of God um, preserved and protected and cared for and, mm. and, and really exciting in this chapter and looking forward to um, uh, epic, incredible uh, story of redemption that's coming. Mm. I think we'll stop um, just for a second and let Hannah read us chapter 14 and then we'll come back and start to have a look at the pictures. Revelation chapter 14, the Lamb and the 144,000. Then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb, standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing waters and like a loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps. They sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they kept themselves pure. They follow the lamb wherever he goes. They were purchased from among men and offered as first fruits to God and the lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. The three angels. Then I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He said in a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. The second angel followed and said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on the forehead or on the hand, he too will drink of the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. He will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. There is no rest, day or night, for those who worship the beast and his image, or for anyone who receives the mark of his name. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints who obey God's commandments and remain faithful to Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven say, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labour, for their deeds will follow them. The Harvest of the Earth 
I looked, and there before me was a white cloud, and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man, with a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Then another angel came out of the temple and called in a loud voice to him who was sitting on the cloud, Take your sickle and reap, because the time to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who was seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was harvested. Another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. Still another angel, who had charge of the fire, came from the altar and called in a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle. Take your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the earth's vine, because its grapes are ripe. The angel swung his sickle on the earth, gathered its grapes and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. They were trampled in the winepress outside the city, and blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as the horse's bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia. It's a great picture. Um that John introduces us to in the at the beginning of chapter 14. Um, it, it's reminiscent of um, similar pictures that you see in the Psalms and in the prophets, mm-hmm. um, often connected to the day of the Lord and the coming redemption. Also, it, it reminds me of that passage that we've looked at a bit through our sessions from um, Hebrews chapter 12 mm-hmm. about the... Um, the encouragement that we've come to Mount Zion um, and to a new covenant with a new mediator. Yeah. Let's just um, unpack the picture a little bit. What are you seeing, Hannah? Um, The lamb uh, standing on Mount Zion and with him is the 144,000. Okay, so a number of these, a uh, number of aspects of, of, of the picture that we're looking at here, um, we've already seen in the book of Revelation. Um, in particular, the lamb um, is clearly a picture of Jesus, the lamb who was slain. Um, Mount Zion will come back to the 144,000 we've seen uh, before as well. Do you remember in chapter 7 where yeah. um, I talked quite a bit about it there, so I won't say the same things again, but the 144,000 is a picture of um, all the tribes of God's covenant people, 12 tribes times 12,000. Yeah. Um, it, it's it's not a literal number. It's a s- symbolic number that represents a perfect remnant of those sealed mm-hmm. um, as part of God's kingdom on the earth. Um and we'll come back to some qualities around these 144,000 that are referred to in a minute. Um, you also have an interesting observation about um, uh, the fact that this this remnant have, the 144,000 have his name, that's the lambs, and his father's name written on their foreheads. What is that? What, what are you connecting that idea to? Um, it reminds me of the verse in chapter 13 um, talking about the mark of the beast and those who worship the beast had his mark on their forehead and their um, right hand. Yeah, good. So this is this is like a contrast. This, these are people that have, rather than given their allegiance to the beast, have stayed faithful to the lamb. Mm-hmm. And um, 
you know, their their thoughts and their actions uh, have consistently followed the Lamb, stayed faithful to the Lamb, and and um, the symbol that that expresses that is that um, the the name of the Lamb and Father's name is written on their foreheads. So so it's clearly a contrast with chapter thirteen. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing that. Uh, before we move on that I think is worth having a little bit of a look at is, is this symbolism around Mount Zion. Um, coming to Mount Zion is, is really significant in terms of the journey we've gone on through uh, Revelation. Mm-hmm. We're now at the point in the picture where, where the lamb is standing on Mount Zion. Mm-hmm. Um, and th- this is a picture that, that is strongly drawn from the Old Testament Mount Zion is the is the traditional name in terms of Jewish literature for the mountain on which Jerusalem was established, and and it comes to be used by the prophets um, as a as a term that ref, that's often connected with God fulfilling His promise to come and rule over His people and dwell with them at the end of the end of the age. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Lots of prophecies to do with the day of the Lord or the coming new new creation, new kingdom. Mm. Um, use this Mount Zion language. I, I'd like to go to one classic place where we see um, this language used that really helps us understand what's going on at the beginning of chapter fourteen, and that's Psalm two. I might just get you to um, have a read of it, Hannah. The whole thing. Yeah, I reckon. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you be destroyed in your way, for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Okay. It's one of the most important psalms in the whole collection. It's an, mm. quite an amazing psalm. Um, it's a really important messianic psalm too. Because it's really about, um, well, in the first instance, it's about the enthronement of King David as king over Israel, but it points mm. to a future where a Messiah will come and on, on God's behalf rule, rule over all the nations of the earth and, and gather God's mm. people. Um, there's, there's language about um, Zion in the middle section of the, mm-hmm. of, the, um, of the psalm. But what's important to understand about the psalm that helps us understand the similar imagery in Revelation is this is a picture of um, God and his Messiah preparing to rule. Mm. Um, 
And while um, while the focus in in the section in Revelation that we're looking at really looks much more at in the first instance, in the first part of chapter 14, at what's going on with the 144,000, that is the remnant gathered people of God. Mm -hmm. Um, Psalm 2 is really about the fact that in in these last times, this Messiah is going to rule over the nations and these nations better watch out because he's a powerful ruler and he's going to um, make judgments. Um, And, and, um, if they if they won't yield, look out. That's that's sort of the picture. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's important in the context of where we're going with our with the with the prophecies in Revelation, because we're at the point now that the Lamb has come to Mount Zion. He's preparing to sit down, um, and 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 rule over the nations. Mm-hmm. Um, and what we'll see in the second half of chapter 14 is really that coming about. What does that rule of the nations look like? In this first section, it's much more focusing on the gathering of God's covenant people to Mount Zion to, mm. to, to um, enjoy his rule and, mm. and, respond, and respond to his rule. Mm-hmm. Um, when, we, when, when you read through... The description of the hundred and forty-four thousand. There's a whole lot of qualities or characteristics um, that are connected with with this uh, th- this remnant covenant people of God. Mm. Could we pick out some of them? Make a bit of a list. What are they like? Um, What's ha- how are they described? Uh, they're described as pure. Yep. They didn't defile themselves. Yep. Good. Um. They follow the lamb. Yep, they follow the lamb. One, perhaps just above that, they are redeemed from the earth is another thing about them. Mm. Keep going. There's a few more. Um, they were purchased. They're purchased, yep. Um, and offered as first fruits to God and yep. the lamb. Yep. Um, they No lie was found in their mouth, so... Honest and then um, blameless as well. Yeah, good. So, so you have this picture of this people that are redeemed, pure, follow the Lamb, purchased. That they're, they're offered as first fruits to God, and th- there's no lies or or they're blameless, um, which is another picture of purity or holiness. All of these, all of these qualities or characteristics are strongly rep- uh, reminiscent mm. of Exodus language. Mm-hmm. The the idea that God would redeem His people, purchase them, mm. um, uh, that they would follow Him. Now, this is a picture of like a new Exodus mm. that's going on that, for the people of God, and He's bought them. And we've seen that, haven't we, in the previous. Um, the previous chapters, chapter 12, he, he's won a victory. Uh, salvation belongs to our God and he's brought them now to Mount Zion mm. where he's going to live with them and rule with them. So he, he, this is a this is a very much a picture of um, like, like Moses gathered um, 
Israel and took them out of the land of Egypt and through the desert and brought mm. them to Mount Sinai. Now you've got the Lamb who's um, saved his people, um, gathered them together, brought mm. them through it, uh, the wilderness and now has them at Mount Sinai where, where he's Zion. going to, sorry, Mount Zion, where, where he's going to uh, rule over them. Um, the other thing that I think is really interesting about this chapter is, is it's quite a noisy little opening to the chapter. There's lots of things to hear, not just see. Could you pick out some of the things that we're hearing in verse 2 and verse um, 3? Um, a sound like rushing waters, a loud peal of thunder, harpists. Um, and singing as well. Yeah. So, so um, when you're picturing this the, the, um, this vision at the beginning of the chapter, it's not just about what you're seeing. It's also about what what you're hearing. Um, and you have um, uh, that that reoccurring motif of um, the sound of rushing water and a loud peal of thunder that often mm-hmm. associates significant things going on. In God's presence, and then you have this amazing um, little description of harpists playing their harps, and the hundred and forty-four thousand singing a new song before the throne, and before the four living creatures and the elders. So it's the throne room breaking into song, and again, this reinforces what we're talking about in terms of a new Exodus. If you remember back to the story of. Um, Israel coming out of Egypt. One of the things mm. once they cross the the, the um, sea mm. and the Egyptian army um, is drowned in the sea. Mm. Do you remember one of the first things that they do on the other side? On the other side, when they're about to head off now, set free. They sing. They sing, and and there's the, there's um I think it's Moses' sister Miriam leads the people of Israel in singing a new song to the Lord about their deliverance and the mm. horse and rider thrown into the sea, mm. etc. That's definitely what's being picked up here. Singing a new song right through the Old Testament always harks back to um, the experience of Exodus. And, and it's very often associated with it accompanies victory. So where Israel have a victory, they sing a new song. Mm. And so um, in this context, you've got this remnant people of God that have been brought out of the world to Mount Zion singing a victory song. Mm. Um, again, it's so encouraging for um for the first century church struggling in, in Asia Minor mm. to understand we're on the other side. The victory's won. Mm. Um, we, we, we're not having to worry about, you know, Egyptian chariots anymore. They've been drowned in the sea, metaphorically speaking. That, yeah. that is, Jesus has come into the earth, gone into enemy territory, um, conquered, delivered, um, and then all those words, redeemed, made pure, purchased, etc., created this people um, that belonged just to him and to to the Father. Um, I want to I want to spend a little bit of time just having a look at this 
idea of first fruits that's introduced in chapter in verse four because in some ways it's mm-hmm. the structural key to the whole chapter and there's a lot of rich things to say here I'm no expert on um, uh, the ins and outs of ancient Jewish festivals but mm-hmm. I know a few things about the first fruits festival that I think are really helpful in understanding what's going on in the picture that's been created um, here mm-hmm. of God's remnant people. So um, the first fruits is is referencing one of the main festivals in the Jewish calendar, which is the really about the harvest. It was called the first fruits um, festival. Mm-hmm. Um, the 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 ancient tradition of the first fruits festival was that the day after the first Sabbath after Passover. So if you're thinking about it, it's yet you have Passover, then you have a Sabbath. Mm. So the first Saturday holy day set aside. The day after that, so it'd be the Sunday. Mm. Um, what would happen is the priests would go out into the fields and cut sheaves of barley. So they'd go out into the barley fields close to the temple in Jerusalem. Mm. Um, there'd be a big procession and all the community would gather and they would ceremonially cut some sheaves of barley and bring them back and offer them in the, the temple accompanied by singing. So it was mm. singing was a huge part of um, the march out into the fields and the bringing back the sheaves of barley. And it, it was about dedicating the the first um, the first bit of the harvest to God and mm. and and really saying thank you for the fruitful harvest this year and um, thanking God for His provision for His people and these uh, these sheaves would be offered as a first fruit and and that really began because it often happened at well. Um, Passover happened in summertime in Israel, so that that was that really was the start of the harvest season that mm-hmm. would then go for a couple of months. Over time, the first fruits festival ended up having uh, what was called the latter first fruits. So, fifty days after Passover, mm-hmm. um, there would be another celebration, which was sort of the end of the first fruits festival that was connected to Pentecost. So, Pente in Greek means 50. Mm-hmm. So um, it's the 50th day festival. Um, and and this was much more a celebration of the end of harvest. It was part of the First Fruits Festival, but it was mm-hmm. um, it came over time to be connected with the giving of the law because if you're thinking about um, um, the journey from Passover um, in Egypt, to receiving yeah. the law at Mount Sinai, tradition yeah. says it was about 50 days. So, mm-hmm. so the first fruits festival was um, the first, uh, the day after the first Sabbath, um, after Passover, um, and and, it, and it, the the festival really continued for for 50 days to the point where traditionally. They celebrated the fact that the the Jew the Israelites got to Mount Mount Sinai and received the law, mm-hmm. and it, um, it was very much connected with um, God's promise to redeem His people, um, 
and the fifty day period was 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 a period in terms of the Jewish um, uh, cycle that was really about preparing for the heavenly bridegroom. So it's the idea that um, uh, a promise has been made that's going to be consummated or fulfilled. Um, and so during this fifty day period, it, it was about um, purification and preparation mm-hmm. for um, looking forward to that that wedding feast that would be the consummate you know the consummation of this first fruits um, festival does that give you a bit of a picture of how the Jews thought about first fruits festival yeah. now in the early church the the imagery connected to the first fruits festival was incredibly significant in how the apostles explained um, the progress of redemption and the place of the church. So if you think about it, um, the first Sunday after Passover, do you Mm. know what day that commemorates in the Christian calendar? Is it the Palm Sunday? No. That, That happened before the cross. So if you're thinking about Passover being connected to the cross, and then you have Sabbath, and then the Sunday. What happens on the Sunday after Passover? Uh, resurrection. Sunday. Yeah, it's Resurrection Sunday, and so much is made in the in the New Test- Testament of the fact that um, uh, this this celebration is now connected to um, the resurrection. Is pass so Passover's Good Friday? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Well, Passover was the Saturday. He died. He had to die before. Yeah, he had to die before the Sabbath. Sabbath, so he died on the Friday. Right. Then you have the Sabbath on the Saturday, and then the resurrection on that. Um, just have a look at. I'll I'll give you an. I'll show you an example of how Paul uses um this first fruits language. Um, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 to 23. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own turn. Christ the firstfruits. Then when he comes, those who belong to him. Da-da, can you see it? Yeah. So, so he's basically, he's connected this um, uh, first fruits festival and the timing of it to, G- to Christ's resurrection and actually said he is like our first fruit. That mm. is, he, he's, he's the one that, um, because he comes to life, the whole harvest is going to, to, yeah. to follow. Um, and very often, Jesus' ascension is linked to um, uh, this idea of first fruits as well. That mm. w- that Jesus is going back to Father to sort of present Himself as as the first fruit re- resurrected from the dead, mm. um, presented to God in His heavenly temple. So it's like a first fruits festival. Jesus mm. um, returned to heaven when He ascends. Now the latter first fruits 
So, so the culmination of the First Fruits Festival is also incredibly significant in the Christian calendar because yep. Pentecost is what? What happens? What happens? The Holy Spirit was given. Right. So, so this Jewish festival is now connected to, um, well, well, there's been a period between the two where Jesus has said really about pur- purification and preparation, go and wait in Jerusalem. You know, get ready, because I'm coming. Um, which is which is exactly what the first fruits festival is all about. And then um, Pentecost is about the reception of the Holy Spirit. Mm. Now, what's really interesting is because, in a sense, that's Jesus coming in the person of His Spirit. Mm. But what's really interesting is through the New Testament, we won't go and look at all the examples. The Holy Spirit's coming to the earth and filling believers is mm. also characterized as a first fruits that that the holy spirit himself is like a down payment a first fruit yeah. um you know uh, that reflects the promise that that god's going to one day come and dwell with us and this is like the fir- mm. a foretaste or a first fruit yeah it's like a, it's the first fruits given to us yeah instead of like originally we were talking about where we are the first fruits. Exactly, exactly. It's like that's a great point. So, so in relation to in relation to um, Resurrection Sunday, it's and the Ascension. It's Jesus pre- being presented as a first fruit. Now, now we're the receivers of this uh, Holy Spirit. That's like a first fruit or a down payment, etc. Now, what's really interesting here in Revelation, is that John's picture is saying something slightly different again. Um, Mm. They were purchased from among men and offered as first fruits to God and the Lamb. So the remnant here are the first fruit. Yeah. Um, Again, this is, think think about the context of, um, a suffering church who's struggling to understand what's going on in terms of redemption. With mm. redemptions, uh, you know, we've heard the gospel and and we're living faithful to Jesus, but everything around us mm. looks like um, suffering and persecution. And mm. where's the power? And where's God in all this? Mm. What what's the point? Do you think that this picture helps them see what's so encouraging about the picture? Mm. What what's John saying or showing us through this picture about the progress of redemption? Where are we at? They're at the beginning. The the early church is just the first fruits, and there's going to be a whole harvest of which they are just the the very start. Yeah. Yeah, but so 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 in, in terms of timing, this picture helps them recognize. Yes, we're at where we are at the beginning, and there's more to come. Yeah, but but it's also a reminder that the end has sort of begun. That we're in the end. In the harvest. Yeah, that the exodus, the exodus. And salvation has already been won. Yeah. When we're now at harvest time, which is which is the last stage of history. Mm. This is the day of the Lord where first fruits 
are followed by a full harvest, which are followed by a wedding feast. It's sort of the last events in the calendar of redemption that we see through the Old Testament prophets Mm. are now playing out and you're in it. That's Mm. the point that John's making to this church that it would would have encouraged them greatly. It mightn't look like it on the earth, but look up. The heavenly reality is you've been offered as first fruits. The Mm. first fruits has begun and you would expect to see a full harvest will follow And then the next thing that will happen is a wedding feast. Now, if you Mm. look at the end of the book of Revelation, Mm. we're going to see by the second half of chapter 14, the harvest, Mm. by chapter 20, you're at the wedding feast. So Mm. this picture becomes really important for understanding um, um, the book book and how it plays out. Mm. The other thing to say is the, the Exodus imagery um, that's been so prominent in the previous chapters about um, the sets of seven, etc., and all the imagery connected to the plagues and um, salvation belongs to our God, etc. Um, that's behind us now. Mm. Um, the, the 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 saving and the the uh, Exodus plagues and the coming through the wilderness, and um, we're now at we're now at Mount Zion, and Jesus is ruling. And he's going to establish his rule over the nations and they better watch out, Psalm 2 style. The next little section, um, we're introduced to a series of um, three angels. So John sees these angels one at a time. And and these um, angels make pronouncements. They proclaim things. And the key to this section is understanding um, the significance of the gospel proclamation. So that's really what these three angels are about. So it's really interesting. Um, the first section is about um, the lamb and his gathered people at Mount Zion pre- preparing to sit down to rule. Mm-hmm. And then you have this um, section in the middle before we get get to the rule or the harvest that's about um, three angelic proclamations. I'll just read you chapter six because that, sorry, verse six, because that's sort of the key to what's going on here. Then I saw another angel flying in midair and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language and people. And he said in a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. Okay, so we've talked about the fact that um, there's a gospel to proclaim to the earth, mm. and this gospel proclamation is is going to bring judgment clearly. The hour of his judgment has come. Mm. What are the what are the what are the other interesting aspects to what the angel proclaims what are you seeing there hannah um uh telling people to fear god and glorify him yeah so recognize him for who he is and respond Mm. respond the way that you should yeah and 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 that last bit about you know worship him as the creator Mm. 
the creator of the heavens and the earth and the sea, etc. This is a um, something that we need to keep in mind when we're thinking about the gospel and what it actually is. Um, we can't, we should never separate the 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 love of God and the gospel as a word of judgment. Because it does mm. it, it does um, it's a word of grace, but grace doesn't mean um, that, that that a judgment hasn't been made. Mm. Um, that's really important to understand. The gospel we preach isn't come to Jesus, he loves you, he's your friend, and he'll sweep all the mess under the carpet. It's mm. not it's not um it's not a love that's uh compromise. Yeah, compromise yeah, that's a good word. It's not a love that's co- compromised the idea is the idea of grace is that that a judgment's been made over the whole world Mm. you're all fall you all fall short you're Mm. all guilty you haven't lived up to god's holy covenant expectations Mm. but the promise of the promise of um the gospel is that god is going to deal with the consequences of your failure Mm. and the separation that it's caused in his own life, mm. that that um, the point is Jesus, that you were wrong, but you're forgiven because mm. God's dealt with it in Himself, and nothing will separate you from His holy love anymore. Mm. Um, but the preaching of this gospel is going to divide because some people respond and draw near, mm. and others resist and get bitter. And are angry at God. Mm. Um, so some hear the gospel, and for them it's a word of mercy. Mm. And some hear the gospel, and their their response means it's a word of wrath. Mm. Um, mercy and wrath are, are, re- are really the two sides that reflect different responses mm. to to the preaching of the gospel. Um, That's going to be really important as we continue um, looking at the next section, which is the harvest. So so the second angel says, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. In relation to what's gone before in chapter 13, does does that sound familiar? Um. Yeah, I guess Babylon could be interpreted as a beast out of the sea. Yeah, very much, very much so. Um, I'm trying to find the bit that I was... It makes me think about um, the woman that comes up in Chapter 17. Yeah, I think it connects forward. um, It connects forward to that as well. But... But that that idea that that um, uh, you know ba- Babylon represents the and and I should say too that that um, 
what the angel proclaims here is directly taken out of Isaiah, fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, but but this is a this is a picture of the judgment over the world empires represented by the beasts of the sea. So part mm-hmm. of the the outcome of the proclamation of the gospel is that um, the nations and the world systems and the empires mm. that have controlled the world will be under judgment as a result of the gospel. That is um, the the church's witness to what Jesus has accomplished, the, the victory that he's accomplished mm. through his uh, work, work on the cross. Um, the third angel is, is really about um, a warning to the world. If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on the, on the forehead or on the hand, he too will drink of the wine of God's fury which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. So, again, this strongly connects to the beast of the earth, mm. um, and it's a warning to people: don't, don't, um, don't worship, don't receive the mark, don't fill your life, your allegiance with mm. a commitment to those um, human faces that front these world empires. Don't follow them. Don't. Don't participate in their worship. Don't get mm. um, sucked into the, the life of the world that they're, they're offering. Um, because if you do, the outcome is you'll be under massive judgment. And there's, there's, a, there's a horrific picture of um, the, the torment that will accomplish um, this judgment um, that the, the third angel goes on to, to outline. Um, At the end of the section, um, uh, John speaks again to his Christian readers. This Mm. calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints who obey God's commandments and remain faithful to Jesus. Mm. And again, we've seen sentences and, and sort of exhortations like this throughout whenever whenever god's doing something devastating or allowing something devastating to happen um the word is often uh endure endure, hang in there be patient um god's with you right in the midst and and you the call is to hang on one of the things that i wanted to pick up here that i think's um quite interesting and perhaps significant, see how it says um, in the last little bit of verse 12, um, this calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints who obey God's commandments and remain faithful to Jesus. Yeah. In Greek, you could actually translate that a different way. Um, Mm -hmm. And translators have made really a theological decision here it's not to do with um uh there's no clues in the language about which way to jump here but but you could say instead of and remain faithful to jesus you could translate that and remain in the faith of jesus Mm. so i won't get into the technicalities of it it's it's about whether you decide 
the genitive case of the word is subjective or objective. But mm. um, the alternate translation, I think, is is very rich. Mm. Um, and one's they're probably both true, but it, I think it's interesting just to have a think about what what difference would it make if it had been translated and rem, instead of and remain faithful to Jesus and remain in the faith of Jesus. How would you think differently about what it means to remain compared to those, thinking about those two different translations? It it puts, almost puts the responsibility on Jesus to have the faith, not ourselves to conjure it up. Yeah, yeah. So, So rather than... Rather than a call to Christians, it's your job to stay faithful to Jesus, mm. and it's it, it's it's the thing that you work up to say, remain in the faith of Jesus. It's much more the responsibility, like you say, it the faith is Jesus' faith. Our job is just to remain. Uh, to remain in it. Mm. Uh, so it, it, to me, it, it strongly connects to that idea that a faith is actually a gift. Yeah. It's actually something that Jesus has provided us with through his own life, through his own faithfulness. Yeah. And it reminds me of, you know, passages like John 15 where, where he talks about, you know, your job is just to abide in me. Yeah. If you feed on my life and draw on my life as the free gift that it that it is, that'll sustain you. That'll keep you connected to my life. Um, yeah. Je- Jesus' faith is given to us when we abide. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly right. Um, so we were talking about, we were talking about right at the beginning, that passage in Colossians chapter 3 where Paul talks about, um, you know, look up. Um, mm. In terms of don't don't look at the world around you. Look up to the heavenly reality. Your life hid with Christ in God. Mm. Um, that that idea that that um, in in God our life is sustained and it's real and true. And we can't see it without the, our eyes. We have to trust by faith. But it's mm. Jesus' life that's like the engine of our life, helping yeah. us helping us live in every way, helping us stay faithful. Um, the last little, the last little um, bit before we move, move on to the third section about the harvest is interesting as well. Verse 13, then I heard a voice from heaven say, right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labours, for their deeds will follow them. So that idea that Christians who die um, are blessed, receive rest, and their labours will follow them. That Mm. is, the the works that they've done on the earth um, are eternal. Mm. You carry them. What, What do you make of that? What do you think that means? How do your deeds, why do your deeds follow you as a Christian? Well, I remember we talked about the fact that when we abide in Christ, 
our deeds are joined to his life, which is eternal, and then things that are eternal never die. Yeah, yeah. So I think it connects with the with the the alternate translation. And that's why I prefer that mm. um, the alternate remain in the faith of Jesus. Yeah. If 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 the translation had consistently been remain in the faith of Jesus, I think it would have helped understand the next couple of verses much more strongly. Yeah. That idea that our deeds follow us. Why? Because we're remaining in the faith of Jesus. That is, they are essentially Jesus' deeds. What we do on the earth as Christians, faithful and obedient, is really participate in Jesus' life. It's his life working through you. So can you say the things I do are Jesus' deeds? Of course you can. Mm. And that's the whole point of the next section on the harvest. Mm. This is the key to understanding what's going on with this harvest. The point is they are Jesus' deeds. Mm. But can you also say those deeds are mine? I get to keep them. And I get to wear them as as part of my own um, uh, life with God. That they, they, they carry through. They'll, they'll follow me in, into eternity. And the answer is true. They're yours as well. They're mm-hmm. God's and yours. Um, theologically, we talk about the idea of things being distinct but not separate. That is, you can look at the, the, these deeds. It's because the life of God is lo- joined to the life of a human being. Mm. When that happens, do we become gods? No. Mm. We're still distinctly human. Yeah. But is our life connected to God in a way that's inseparable? Yes. That we can never not be connected? Yes. So we're distinct but not separate. So you can mm. see God at work in us. Mm. You can, but you can also recognise the difference between us and God, mm. but in a way that's not separate, permanently joined. Why is that the case? Because that's Jesus' life, isn't he? He's a God-man, fully mm. God and fully, fully man, mm. yep, in a way that you can recognise, yes, he's God. And, yes, he's fully human, but mm. you can never understand those two things about Jesus as separate from each other anymore. Do you see that? Mm. He's God and man, but in an inseparable way. So you can't sort of get Jesus under a microscope or scientifically analyse and divide up the parts that are God and the parts that are man. Yeah. You, you can't. He, he's He's one person, one indivisible person that is... Yeah. inseparable person, one whole person, mm. but you can recognise distinction. That is, there's things about him that reflect God and not human beings, mm. and there's things about him that are truly human mm. in the one in the one person. Now, mm. it's true of him and, therefore, it's true of us mm. and, therefore, it's true of our deeds, mm. that, that, that our deeds are fully God's, but they are also fully ours in a way that we can't, um, we, we, we can rec- recognise God at work and us at work, but we can't separate the two. Mm. Yeah, it's powerful. Okay, let's look at the last section now um, from verse 14 to the end of the chapter. 
So it begins again with John uh, refocusing on uh, a picture of this this uh, powerful figure who's not a lamb now. What what's the what's the elements in the picture in verse fourteen and fifteen? Huh? Um, there was a white cloud. And seated on the cloud was one like a son of man with a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Okay, so there's a lot of little elements to the picture there. First of all, clouds generally uh, are associated with God's presence. Mm. So you see that with, you know, clouds descending, etc. So, um, and that, but they speak of of something that's veiled, Mm. that, 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 that idea that it's um, a hidden presence. Mm-hmm. So um, w- the point is be really clear we're in heaven here. Um, this is a heavenly reality that's open to faith, um, but you have a figure on a white cloud. How's this figure described? Um, as one like a son of man. Now we've seen that before. Do you remember where? In Daniel. We've, yep, it's from Daniel, but but that's how that's how John very first introduced the person of Jesus in chapter one, if you remember, all the way back to chapter one. He's returned yeah. to that imagery from from the book of um, the book of Daniel. Um, he has a crown on his head and a sickle in his hand. Okay, so um, imagine one. Imagine this this figure. It doesn't say he's seated on the throne, but I imagine he's seated. Um, yeah, it says he. Well, it says he's seated on the cloud. Oh yeah, okay, that's important. And seated on the cloud, well, well picked up. You sit down in the ancient world to rule. Mm-hmm. So, um, where someone who's wearing a crown is sitting down, you've got a ruler ruling, mm-hmm. um, and that that's a really important thing to recognise as well. Um. Crown of gold and a sharp sickle in his hand. What's a sickle? A harvest tool. Yeah, yeah, a harvesting tool. So a picture a big curved blade um, on the end of a, a long stick, sort of like the Grim Reaper, um, <laughs> and and it was used. Uh, obviously, it's the it's an ancient harvesting tool that was used to to harvest crops. Um, now, we already know what this harvest tool um, symbolises because that's really been the focus of the three angels in the previous section. What is the harvesting tool? The gospel. Yeah, the proclamation of the gospel is the, the, the harvesting tool. Um, that's, that's what the harvesting tool actually is. Mm. Okay, so... Um, then another angel comes out of the temple and in a loud voice <coughs> speaks to the one sitting on the cloud, take your sickle and reap because the, the time to reap has come for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who was seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth and the earth was harvested. So what 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 are you imagining there? How's that picture Who's doing this and what's going on? Um, 
an angel announces that it's time for harvest? Yep. For the harvest? Yep, good. So the time has come is very significant. And again, we've seen that language before in relation to the proclamation of the gospel mm-hmm. and the end of the age. Um, it's interesting here that you've got a, an angel actually instructing Jesus in the heavenly temple. Mm. Um, the fact that this angel comes out of the heavenly temple is significant too. It's like um, it, uh, th- this is an instruction that's coming right out of the holy of holies, out mm-hmm. of the heart of God. Yeah. Um, you know, the think of the blazing holiness of God's life. Out of that comes mm. this instruction to harvest the earth. And so Jesus in heaven swings the sickle and the earth is harvested. You imagine the picture seems to me like one swing and whoop, it's done. Yeah. Now, what is the harvest? Well, um, we could guess but you you presume based on based on the the context of um, what's ha- what what the angels have been proclaiming about the proclamation of the gospel and the coming mm-hmm. judgment that the harvest is a harvest of people, mm-hmm. um, and it's about their response to the gospel. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the things that um, again the. It's often done really badly when people study Revelation, but it's really important that you you interpret um, theologically what's going on in Revelation in the light of the rest of the New Testament. It's not offering a different gospel or a different version of theology. It's mm. consistent. Yeah. Now, there's there's some classic places that we can go back into the New Testament to help us understand this harvest that's going on. Mm-hmm. The the main place is there's there's a great chapter and a bit in Matthew's gospel, chapter Mm nine, that we'll just go back and have a look at, because this is a place where Jesus actually uses the same language to talk Mm -hmm. about um, his role and what's going on on the earth. So I'll just read you from um, chapter 935. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. So um, another way of saying that is this is Jesus engaged in gospel proclamation. Mm, Yeah. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Hmm. Now, what's Jesus' understanding about what he's doing? What could you say based on him using this picture? Um, he's collecting the crops of the harvest yeah that that part that he he's understanding his own mission mm. um in the context of this um work of god to to harvest the earth mm-hmm. what's interesting here though is the harvest is not for him to do alone what's mm. the point he's making here um 
But he's also gathering workers to work alongside him. Yeah, to do the harvesting. So, again, do you remember in Chapter 1 where where John often presents us a, a heavenly reality that has an earth, a corresponding earthly reality? Yeah. And we talked about um, how how Jesus speaks to the churches, I think, from memory. Yeah. This is another true. classic place where something in heaven parallels something on earth, and you need to understand both parts. So in heaven, what does what does the outcome of the proclamation of the gospel look like? Well, it looks like Jesus on his own swinging a sickle, whoomp, yeah. through, through the earth and it's harvested. Yeah. Now, on the earth... What's the corresponding reality? Christians going out proclaiming the gospel. Yeah, the church's witness to the gospel on the earth. That is that is Jesus swinging the sickle mm. from the perspective of the earth. Mm. Um, that's, that's a really important thing to understand here. So if you go through the whole of chapter 10 in Matthew there, um, that's exactly what happens. The Lord of the harvest sends out workers. So mm-hmm. Jesus is the Lord of the harvest, and he sends out um, he sends out seventy two to act and speak in his name. That is with his authority. Yeah. Um, can you see how this is connecting to what we were talking about before about your deeds are eternal deeds? That yeah. idea is God's work is your work. Mm. That that's exactly what happens in in um, Matthew chapter ten. So these these workers, these disciples, are given all sorts of instructions mm. and authority to go out and heal the sick and raise the dead and drive out demons. And he warns them that they're going out like sheep among wolves. And he even says to them, "It will not be you speaking, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you." Mm. Um, again, reinforcing this idea that our deeds are God's deeds. Mm. Um, it's amazing how all of this st- starts to line up. Mm. It, he encourages them to reveal hidden things. That is the things that are whispered in your ear, yell them out, proclaim mm. them. Um, so it's really a call to, um, uh, you know, bear witness, get the message, get the message, the good news um, out that, God's kingdom is come. But he also talks about in chapter 10 um, the fact that how people respond to the church and the the work of these disciples who are workers in the harvest will set their judgment. Um, He says some really strong things. I'll just pick out one, one verse to read to you about it. Matthew 10, verse 14 and 15. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, shake the dust off your feet when you leave that home or town. I tell you the truth, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. So that's introducing the idea that how how the disciples are received Sets the sets the judgment of these towns and villages in Israel. Mm. So how how people respond sets their judgment. That's the principle here. Mm. So the, the harvest going out, the proclamation of the gospel going out, is the crisis of humanity, mm. because what's happening is an eternal work now of the eternal Son through mm. His Church, and and what it means is how you respond to the, to to this proclamation. Will will set 
whether you you, um, you receive mercy or wrath, mm. it will be determined by by how you respond. Jesus says um, later on in chapter ten, um, verse thirty-four: "Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword." And what what he means by sword here is not a sword as though it, off with everybody's head. That's not what he means. Yeah, it, he's talking about a sword in the sense that a sword is something that can make sharp distinctions that can divide mm. um, in scripture consistently. And you see it in the new Testament too. Swords divide between soul and spirit that they separate mm. um, those on the left and those on the right, etc. Mm. And that's what the gospel proclamation is. It's the coming of a sword that will separate mm. and how you respond will choose, will, de- will determine um, which, which camp you're going into. Mm-hmm. Um, that that's that's um, a really important thing to recognise. So, to me, this this I don't know it raises questions about how we proclaim the gospel today. Mm. You know, very often it's almost seen as a marketing exercise of the church mm. to proclaim the gospel. Do you know what I mean? We, like we have to find ways to make it attractive to people. Mm. Now, don't get me wrong. Um, Jesus says, I didn't come to judge, I came to save in Mm. John 12. He's really clear. That's his heart. His love Mm. is motivating all of this. Mm. But our job is not to make Jesus likable. That's not what the the gospel proclamation is about. It's to declare the truth. It's not a marketing exercise. Mm. It's a faithfulness exercise, Mm. gospel proclamation. Mm. It was for Jesus as well. Mm. One of the things that um, Jesus says consistently, even in that um, section in John chapter 12, is, you know, I I only say what, I'm given to say. Mm. Um, it, his his priority is not making Father attractive. It's being faithful to the things he's being commissioned to communicate. Yeah. Um, now we should have the same attitude with the gospel. Our question as as the church and as individuals is: Is my am I proclaiming the the gospel that's true? Mm. Um, our job is not 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 to so much think about who's in and who's out. It's to bear witness to who Jesus is and the truth of mm. what he's done. Mm. How people respond, that 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 that's God's sovereignty. And that's up to the, that that's up to individuals. Mm. We're not responsible for how people respond. We're responsible to the faithfulness for the faithfulness of mm. the message that we're communicating. Not just in our words. But in our communities mm. and in our in in our actions, that 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 is that that is all part of what it means to proclaim the gospel. Are we bearing witness to um, the work and rule of this great King in a way that's faithful? Okay, last little section, and then we're finished. In this final little section. You, we have another harvest. So we have um, an, an, two angels appear, one with a sickle and the other one that takes fire from the altar. And we've come to see that these 
these um, images around sickles and taking fire from the altar. They're pictures of um, God's holiness expressed in judgment against those who've rejected him or rejected the world. So um, what we've seen in this chapter so far is um, the lamb wielding a sickle, and we've seen that that was about the harvest about connected to the proclamation of the gospel. Um, this second harvest, in a sense, is about the implications for those who've rejected the gospel proclamation. Um, and we see the devastating consequences for those who, who reject the gracious gift of the life of the lamb who was slain, which, which, is, the, which is what the gospel proclamation is, is all about. And um, it, what's happening here, in a sense, is that you have people r- right at the end of things making a choice not to accept the free gift of God's grace but to stand before his holiness on their own. In their own, um, in their own works, and who can stand? That's the point. Um, it's a, it's a it's a dramatic picture, a devastating picture of God's righteous anger. You know, one thousand six hundred stadia is about three hundred kilometers. Mm. So you're 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 thinking of blood on a scale that's just defies description. So. Well, what's going on here? The the Old Testament is going to help us understand these pictures. Um, two places in particular um, that are um, that they that they, this imagery is drawn from. One is Joel chapter three. Um, this is a really really interesting um, allusion that um, John is making to Joel chapter three because. Um, the bringing together of um, harvesting with a sickle and uh, grapes being pr- uh, pressed in a wine press, mm. um, it, it's sort of mixing metaphors in one way because yeah. sickles are for harvesting grain. Um, but but it immediately takes your mind to, to Joel because Joel chapter 3 does, does the same thing. Um, mm. it, it uses both of those um, metaphors. Um, the context of Joel chapter three is um, uh, again. It's about the day of the Lord. So you're talking about a prophecy that's to do with looking forward to the end of the age, where God's rule is established on the earth. And the last chapter is about the gathering of the nations in the Valley of Decision, where God judges the nations. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a devastating picture of those who've roused God's anger or or rebelled and what will happen to them. We won't read it all, but I would encourage you to go and have a read of the whole of Chapter 3. We're going to focus just on the bit um, that connects most strongly with um, the picture in Revelation. But it's it's important to understand where this picture begins, um, and it actually begins in an amazingly gracious word. I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Um, your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. So this is about um, it begins with a picture of um, deliverance and the, re- and the receiving of the blessing of God's life for Israel. And it actually finishes with a great blessing on God's people 
where um, the Lord your God will dwell in Zion and Jerusalem will be holy and never again will foreigners invade her. So um, in between, it's, it's sort of like a sandwich, in between these two pictures of extraordinary blessing is this absolutely devastating judgment in the middle. Mm. We'll, and we'll just read a few um, verses of it, um, maybe 12 to 16. Let the nations be roused. Let them advance into the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the nations on every side. Swing the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, trample the grapes, for the winepress is full, and the vats overflow, so great is their wickedness. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and moon will be darkened and the stars no longer shine. The Lord will roar from Zion and thunder from Jerusalem. The earth and the sky will tremble, but the Lord will be a refuge for his people, a stronghold for the people of Israel. Okay, I'm I'm aware time is on the wing and I don't want to um, go on and on, but what's basically happening here is that you have the Lord setting things to right, mm. restoring things to, how, to, to his perfect um life and his perfect vision and 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 you have a picture here of the nations who've been rebellious just being absolutely no match for the blazing holiness of god's life Mm. and that holiness is reflected in a devastating judgment um where a sickle is swung and grapes are pressed and and um um, very similar to the picture in um, Revelation. Let's just go to the other passage quickly. Um, this one's re- a really, really interesting little passage as well. Isaiah 63, verses one, verse 1 to 6. Who is this coming from Edom, from Bosra, with his garments stained crimson? Who is this robed in splendor, striding forward in the greatness of his strength? It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why are your garments red like those of one treading the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone from the nations no one was with me. I trampled them in my anger and trod them down in my wrath. Wrath. Their blood spattered my garments and I stained all my clothing. For the day of vengeance was in my heart and the year of my redemption has come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled that no one gave support. So my own arm worked salvation for me, and my own wrath sustained me. I trampled the nations in my anger. In my wrath, I made them drunk and poured their blood on the ground. Okay, so another devastating picture of the Lord coming to judge the nations and um, how all-consuming God's wrath is Um, and and the picture of um, the trampling of grapes in a wine press um, paints that that really vivid picture what can we see what can we see in Isaiah 63 in particular that's so helpful in understanding what's going on and, and understanding what it means for God to come in judgment I don't know if you remember back to one of the first sessions we did, Hannah, but we do you remember when we talked about um, 
uh, Jesus speaking to his churches that when Jesus appears in the midst, mm. in his holiness, um, as a king, there will always be uh, saving and judging going on at the same time mm. because his love is holy. Um, so, so you'll see um, words that are words of salvation and actions that are actions of salvation, and you'll see actions that are about devastating judgment that speak to his holiness as well mm. in, in, the, in the one event. Um, and this is a pattern wherever God turns up and meets Israel or the church. Um, it's all through the New Testament as well. God hasn't changed his character. Mm. Um, the, the judgment doesn't have to be devastating, though. It's just uncompromising. Devastating, yeah, maybe maybe uncom- um, uncompromising is a better word. And and what what we need to understand too is that we have a perfect mediator who's not only delivering the judgment, mm. but has has taken it on himself to endure the judgment as well. That's the power of the cross, um, and that's 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 really what um, this this section is about hmm. it's about what impact does the cro- we're not when we're reading about sickles and blood and 1600 stadia high etc hmm. we're not talking about something that's going to happen at the at the very end of the age and we'll all be wallowing in blood what what's being talked about is this is the application of the cross that's being talked about. Mm. So, um, what's we we shouldn't shy away from sections like this. They're re- actually really helpful in understanding what has God done in Jesus mm. at the cross. Um, that that's that's so final, so complete, and the the one thing the one the one message that you get when you look at the cross is this love is holy mm. it, if we it, if we're talking about holiness we're talking about the blazing fire of his love that burns up everything that seeks to mess up and wreck his life that's mm. what holiness is so he loves so purely and so perfectly that anything that would get in the way of it is utterly destroyed um, that's what it means that love is holy. And that's why love, God's love is the most powerful thing in the world. Nothing can separate us from mm-hmm. God's love. So what, what we're going to see is um, in these pictures drawn from the Old Testament, the power of the cross from, from two sides, from the side of um, the saving work of God, mm-hmm. but also from the side of the, ju- the judging work as well, and, and we need to hold both at once. God's not two-faced. Mm. Um, this, God is not sometimes vengeful mm. and sometimes loving, mm. sometimes saving and sometimes condemning. That's a really, really wrong way to think about God. Mm. What you need to understand is, his vengeance and his love go together. His saving and, and his um, condemning are two sides to the one work. Um, mm. He saves and judges because he's holy in in every response he makes to human beings. 
Let's have a look at Isaiah 63, and you'll see this isn't a New Testament idea. The cross doesn't make God sort of love us differently. This has been God's character from the beginning, and the prophet Isaiah clearly saw it. It's a really rich um, little passage, Isaiah 63, to go back over and have a look at yourself and, and see how Isaiah speaks about the way the Lord is working here. Mm. I'll pick out three places. Um, the first one is uh, um, the Lord says, It is I speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Mm. So what you're seeing there is... Um, Two things put in parallel with each other. Mm. Speaking in righteousness, that that is uncompromising holy words, Mm -hmm. responding rightly to sin, Um, mighty to save is the other side of the same event. So Mm. when God acts, he will speak in righteousness, mighty to save at Mm. once. Um, it, it goes on. There's another one a couple of lines down. First, For the day of vengeance was in, in my, my heart, heart and the year of my redemption has come. So Isaiah, again, is clearly putting two things in parallel. Mm. The day of vengeance was in my heart mm. and the year of my redemption has come. So, so you have a day of vengeance and a year of redemption. One speaks of his holy judging work, day of vengeance. One speaks of his mighty to salvation work, um, year of redemption. It's also interesting there, the balance. Um, Mm. In terms of vengeance, it's a day. Mm. In terms of redemption, it's it's a year. So if if you're trying to understand God's heart, his, his heart is to save. It's about compassion. John 12 spoke about that too, didn't it? That, um, that we looked at before, that idea that I didn't, he says, I didn't come to judge, I came to save. If you ask me why I've come, yeah, I want people to be joined to my life and to be made new and restored and mm. reconciled, etc. Judgment's a part of it, but it's not, it's not the thing that's motivating or driving him. Mm. So in, in Isaiah's language, um, that's that's worth a day, whereas redemption's worth a year. Mm. Um, th- there's a really powerful sentence just at the end too. Do you want to read it? So my own arm worked salvation for me and my own wrath sustained me. Again, two ideas put in parallel to show you both sides of God's wor- work here. Mm. So y- you have him being sustained, his arm working salvation, Mm. Um, and then his wrath sustaining him. Mm. So salvation and wrath um, moving forward together. This isn't a this isn't God being cruel or vindictive. This is a God who's committed to covenant holiness on a mm. scale we just can't comprehend. Um, mm. It's totally awesome, and it and it does it should freak you out a, a bit in terms of. You're watching God do things on God's scale here. Um, what what we need to to hold on to is the cross is holiness on this scale. The cross, it, all, all of those Isaiah sentences that I've just read out, you mm-hmm. could you, you could apply them directly 
to Jesus speaking about what he's doing on the cross. The cross is not about half measures. This is a God who's gone all in to save completely, but to judge overwhelmingly as well. Mm. Um, and so when you're, when, when you're contemplating the cross, understand you, you, you're contemplating um, the most amazing salvation and the most in, uh, earth-shattering judgment mm. in the one event. That's what the cross is. Um, it reminds me of it reminds me of that passage that we've read a few times from Hebrews, chapter twelve. Um, and I'll finish with with um, with this thought. Yeah, just read twenty two to twenty five. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, once more I will shake not only the earth but also the heavens. This picture of um, this treading of the wine presses, it has actually become quite powerful in my own um, worship and res- responding to God in recent days as I've I've been thinking about this. Um, what 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 I'm seeing is this: that God has encountered our sin in Christ and treaded the wine presses sixteen stadia high in blood. The, the you know the blood guilt has been totally paid for. Mm. God has dealt with sin utterly in his own life through Jesus' um, shed blood. Um, you know, and and the, the, not to shy away from these pictures of devastating judgment, this is, this is God dealing with everything counter to his holy life and obliterating it. It reassures our hearts as Christians, doesn't it? Well, mm. it does for me. It reassures our hearts. In Jesus, all the mess and rebellion mm. and and everything that stands in the way of um, sharing God's life has been totally obliterated. Um, I, to me, it's a reminder there's no half me- measures. Jesus has done an absolutely um, holy and thorough job, and that passage from um, that passage from Hebrews is so important in understanding. We don't have to fear judgment. 
we, sh- we can embrace it because we have a perfect mediator who stood in our place and his blood has spoken a better word than the blood of Abel. So come on, be reconciled. Hear his heart and hear his holiness. I should say just at the end that some Christians, um, when when you talk about these sorts of things or um, find find it really, really difficult to handle that God could be like this, you know, that, that idea, no, God's too hard or God's not fair or, you know, those sorts of questions. Mm. And, I, and I just want to say to finish that if that's your view, you need to shift your position. Mm. You don't get to decide the terms on which you relate to God. You're not approaching an equal. Mm. Um, think about, you know, stories like Moses and the burning bush. Draw near is the call. But take your shoes off because you're on holy ground. Mm. God God wants you near, but he sets the terms. Mm. A New Testament picture that's almost um, saying the same thing is Peter what, uh, when he refuses to have his feet washed by Jesus. You remember that story? Yeah. And Jesus basically says, unless you let me have the initiative, unless you start responding to my word and 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 living in response to my word, you have no part in me. He's, mm. he's he's absolutely clear about it. You don't get to decide how I relate to you. You don't get to decide how I relate to you. Um, you can't read Reve- the book of Revelation or relate to God as an observer of His holy actions, mm. as though that you can sit back like Peter or. Moses and, and say, I approve of that one or I don't like the way you did that or yeah. whatever. Yeah. Um, when the, when, when uh, the word of God goes out, it addresses you. Mm. You don't sit in judgment of it. It judges you. And that's mm. the whole point about the proclamation of the gospel. It, it's the sword that the word of God is the sword that divides. Your job is to respond. Mm. It's God's word that initiates. You obey. He calls. You know, he gives. You receive. He judges. You yield to his judgment. Mm. Um, you've been conquered. That's that's part of the message here. Mm. The difference between a Christian and someone who's a rebel out in the kingdom of the world mm. is that you're soft to the fact that you've been conquered. Mm. You bend your knee, you yield to it, even to hard things that are difficult to comprehend, the scale and implications of his holy love. Mm. Let him show you his holiness in Jesus. That's the key. That's why Jesus has come. That's part of why he came with a human face, that he, he allows you to absorb and respond to God's holiness in a way that doesn't cause fear Mm. and cause us to run away and hide, but allows us to draw near and rejoice. Mm. How gracious is God who reveals his holy character in us when we're already perfectly secure because of his work on the cross.